tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Waikoloa Solar officially opens on the Big Island today. It will operate with the lowest rates in the state, which will mean reduced bills for Big Island residents. But not everyone is a fan of large solar farms. It's a blight to some, and its sprawling footprint may take some getting used to. Here are some residents sounding off. Well, I think it's an eyesore. It's not going to bring down our electric bill, you know. Everybody said, well, it's going to bring down the electric bill, but it's not because, let's face it, Helco isn't going to do anything that's going to save you money if they can help it. They'll save them money, but your bill will not go down. Plus, what happens in 20 years when all those panels come up for renewal? Because there is a lifetime on those panels. And from what I understand, they're made with such hazardous materials that getting rid of them is going to be a whole nother nightmare in it unto itself. So, um, but like most things in White Kaloi, it sort of got just, you know, one day it wasn't there and the next day it was. And I realize that White Kaloi has been designated as a growth area by the county and the state and everything else. But um, used to be a nice little village, uh, you know, it's like, but no, if, if I had gotten a vote on it, I would have voted no. Do you feel like it'll have a positive impact on White Kaloa residents? It, it probably will, but my thoughts are mostly is uh, it's a beautiful country. Why couldn't they set it back right up instead of right on the highway behind something, there's other ground. Why they couldn't kind of confine it to a concealed area, a little more concealed than right down, uh, you know, that, that's, that's I, I understand I'm, it's yeah. with the environment and everything like that, but it just seems like uh, it could have been in a spot where it ain't quite as noticeable. And maybe some people are used to it, but yeah. I'm from the country. <laughs> And I kind of like to try to keep the country as, as a, where the people at least are looking, you know. Yeah. And that area up there, I don't see it getting developed as, you know, anything more than a, a million dollar houses maybe with pools up there, who knows. And the solar farm has to be somewhere we've got to get off of oil or whatever. And Hawaii has no way to import anything, you know, other than through the barges. So it's good to be self-sufficient. I, I see it as a, as a win. Do you feel like it'll be a big help to increasing renewable energy on the Big Island and maybe hopefully bringing down the cost of energy bills? That's the hope. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah it sounds like a dream come true. Mm. Usually though, I've learned that when big things happen like that, if it sounds too good to be true, it kind of is. But let's just hope it for the best. I mean, a positive. But some say solar is necessary to get Hawaii to its energy goals of 100% renewables by 2045. AES Energy currently has uh, with the, has the most green energy projects underway in the state, nine total. We spoke with CEO Bernard DeSantos and market business leader Sandra Larson about the build-out across the islands. DeSantos says its mission is to pick up the pace toward our renewable goals. Earlier this week, AES Hawaii announced the timetable for taking apart its now defunct coal plant at Campbell Industrial Park. In the dismantling process now is about taking down the structure and put the site in the original conditions that was probably more than 30 years ago. Where we see the plant today, it's going to be just grass at the end of that process. Is there any way to reuse any of those uh, structures, any part of it at all? The structures by itself is going to be recycled. All the structures that we're going to take down is going to be recycled. And that we talk is about repurpose of the site. Okay, we can repurpose of the site. It's a good site. We are familiar with that site for more than 30 years, so we know everything inside out uh, on that site. It's a lease that AES has and continue to have. And uh, we are evaluating opportunities in order to repurpose for another energy technology in the same site. Right, so you're you're talking about a battery storage facility possibly? There is different technologies that we can put in place. And uh, we can put in place solar, 
or we can put in place energy store and we can put both. So we have not disregard the auction that we have in order to actually make a, a development on the site, following all the process that we need to, to file permits, uh, leasing, lands, uh, all the things that you need to, to do at the development stage. But, it, but if you ask me, yes, uh, I think it's a site that could actually continue to produce energy with a different technology. It's close to high demands in Oahu Island. So I, I will say that, yes, the, the plan was there, may meet that purpose, and I think different technology could meet that purpose. Uh, yes, it's a developer of renewable. That is what we do. We manage the transition from thermal coal, organizing order to create renewable. That is what we are doing here in Hawaii. That is what we do in every market and in every, co every customer. This plant was 180 megawatts coal plant operation, very reliable than the lower cost of energy. We have right now about 350 megawatts of renewable between solar, wind, and energy storage, either in operation or in or in construction right now, and right. it's part of that journey of achieving that renewable future. And Sandra, jump in here, because you sure. are about to bless the site on the big island of Waikoloa yes. and open it up. We're really excited. It's a culmination of lots of hard work from our team. We're really, really proud of our team. There's definitely some challenges. You know, this project came about during COVID, and so there were a lot of unprecedented challenges that the team had to navigate, and we're really proud that we've been able to bring the project online, and you're right, we're celebrating with a blessing and the grand opening of the site. The uh, facility there will be the largest for uh, the island of Hawaii. Exactly the largest on the island, and we're uh, expecting it to bring down customers' bills about $5 a month. So that's really, for island residents, you know, something that they're, they've been waiting for. So we're happy to be able to bring that online for them. And can you talk about the challenges that we've seen, you know, because the Biden administration has been talking a lot about bringing production back here. And I know a lot of companies get their panels from either China or, you know, Vietnam. And so uh, talk about, you know, what we've had to do here. I think the way to understand the, the market and, and in solar mainly, we should say that about 75 to 80% of the solar models production is from a Chinese company. So the, you need to keep that in mind. So the process of the tariffs is what are many of the Chinese producers are actually moving away factories outside of China. South Asia, um, mainly Indonesia, Malaysia, and other countries. And that is where, you know, the tariff actually take place. So in the way to see that is that the cost of the model for U.S. market is actually higher than any other that other market due to the tariff uh, set. The incentive of the IDA of the Inflation Reduction Act is actually to bring jobs and to actually bring those facilities into the United States. So there are several companies that actually are bringing those. Now that we have clarity in the domestic content, uh, or companies that are needed under the Inflation Reduction Act, we are going to see, and we have been actually working in collaboration with companies in order to help them or secure volume with them, or consortiums with another companies in order to actually create that factory or manufacture of model here in the United States. We're going to see something similar for energy storage as well for batteries. Okay. And then did we have problems during COVID with supply and demand? In particular, for the Waikoloa project, we did have shipments of modules that ended up having to be returned and, and taken back to customs. And so there was, you know, a, a, a team yeah, there and also just, you know, challenges in terms of finding new modules, having to redesign the project so that it was going to meet these new specifications. So the team really overcame a lot to bring this online. I mean, it was four years to bring the project from, you know, pen and paper to where it is today. I will say when you look at the market, and I really would like to highlight the difference between AGS and many other companies. When COVID hit, and there were a lot of issues in production because manufacturers, factories actually shut down, or they reduced really their capacity significantly. And then the logistic of transportation, there were really breaks and delays in all the transportation that actually impact some of the projects. Some developers actually walk away from that project. In AES, we did not. 
we fulfill our commitment, we actually bring and we have some delays, we manage our delays, we actually took costs in order to actually continue to support this energy transition and actually fulfill the commitments that we have with our old customers. So when we see in the overall, the commitments that we have a, as a company, we actually pursue and we stand by in any project that we have. All of our projects in Hawaii, um, they were uh, on construction and have some impact on that. They have some delays, but all of those projects right now has modules secure. They have racking secure. They have everything in place. Batteries in order to actually be uh, commissioning uh, soon. Waikaloa is the the first uh, project that come from that uh, line, but we have Kui Helani as well in Maui, and that is actually you know under construction. West Oahu yeah. all just entered into operation just a few months ago. So um, we're really happy to see that, as uh, Sandra has mentioned, that our team has overcome all the challenge. And uh, we have done this uh, here in, in Hawaii state and other states in, in mainland. And Sandra, I know the one on Maui, that will then be the largest here in the state. That's right, the largest in the state. It's 60 megawatts. A number of these large utility scale projects often have an ag component. So will we have that as well for, for the Maui project? I'm not sure about the Maui project. I know in Hawaii we do have sheep that are grazing under the panels, and at West Oahu we're going to be having uh, cattle grazing, and we're working with beekeepers to try to have beekeeping as well. So we're really looking at the agrivoltaic, the dual use with agriculture component. Um, you know, it's really important to us. Land is very precious here in Hawaii. So we're highly aware of that and want to work with local farmers to make sure that we're incorporating that with our projects. And then so to clarify, so on the Waikoloa one, is there an ag component for that as well? We were not able to. The fire department specifically did not want anything for safety reasons. Okay, just because of the it, it's very fires. dry there. Yes, yeah, so, exactly. So that's a little different then. There's not much growing under the panels either. So you know, it's much drier. And we did work with the fire department, and they were very specific in terms of not wanting to have that agricultural use there for safety reasons. Oh, that's I, interesting. I think the way to the way to think in in our projects, not only in Hawaii but also in in the other states in the mainline. Uh, in every project, when we look at the impact of the community and what is the dual use or dual purpose that we can do at the land. Sometimes the land is actually rich and we can actually do agriculture, we can do the ship, or we can do other things uh, next to. Sometimes it's dry and uh, we cannot do the same. We have some cases, for example, in Arizona, that is actually very dry as well. So we don't have that dual purpose. But if you see Puerto Rico, to give an example, or we look some areas in California, based on the discussion that they have with the community and the local authorities, that is where actually this came into place. Right, so, so the land so, will dictate what you so do. So the land will dictate and what is really the type of sector is really prominent in that state will also have an influence for how we do the, or we actually adapt the, the lands in order to do dual use. That was Bernard DeSantos and Sandra Larson talking to us about AES Hawaii's green energy plans. This past fall, AES Energy announced plans for the largest hydrogen plant in the country located in Texas. AES is in talks with local officials about green hydrogen development here, so stay tuned. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the Global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options. Scheidler.hawaii.edu Today on The Daily, five years after the Me Too movement changed the world, Rachel Abrams, a Times reporter who covered it, talks to a woman who was the source of a major story. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. 
if you were standing in Leilani Estates on the Big Island five years ago, you would probably be transfixed by the sight of lava erupting out of your property or flowing through your neighbor's yard. Today, amidst the grid of roads and property lines, homes and trees, lies an empty riverbed or channel approximately a half a mile wide. It winds through the cold lava from the 2018 Kilauea Lower East, uh, East Zone eruption until it meets the sea at Kapoho Bay. It's what remains of the river of lava that started at what was then called Fissure 8. It is the largest fissure to rise from the eruption and is responsible for the majority of the volcanic activity over the last half of the event. Today, it's known as Ahu Ailaau. The Conversations Russell Subiono recently got the chance to take a tour of the now dormant fissure. Do you remember where you were when the 2018 Kilauea eruption began? I'm just letting everybody know right now. We have an eruption, we have an eruption. We have an eruption right now. Eruption in Leilani, no joke. Um, lava is coming out right now. I do. I was at work watching a live stream video on Facebook. Growing up on the Big Island, we were always warned that there could be eruptions anywhere, anytime. But to see it actually happening had me in a trance. I'm sure just about anyone living in Hawaii at that time has a story. So black sand started feeling the earthquakes first, I would say out of all the neighborhoods. And they felt it probably for about a 24 hour period of time because that's how long we felt it. Yeah. So it was like a noon to noon. And that whole night when it was rocking and rolling in here, I mean, nobody's sleeping. That's Chris Burmeister. He's lived in Leilani Estates for 20 years and raised his sons there. His home was overrun by lava. He has a new home now. And in the five years since the eruption, he's bought some of the surrounding land from his neighbors. We met up at his property on the north side of Fisher 8, near his fence that separates the lush green flora that populates most of the lots in Leilani Estates and the edge of the barren black lava fields. It was various intensities, just high, medium, low, and constant. As soon as you tried to sleep it felt like somebody was shaking you and waking waking you up and so we got through that night and woke up the next day and that's when they started noticing cracks in the road then Ikaika was mapping all the cracks and it just happened to make this line right across the neighborhood but at that time usgs was saying hey there's no heat yet so we don't know so we all got really good sleep that night and woke up the next day and the cracks that used to be this wide are now this wide. <laughs> so still no heat. And so by then my dad's seeing the pictures on the, the news and everything. And he's like, what are you doing? You know, you got kids. I mean, my, my boys were 15 and 16 at the time. And he's like, what are you doing to prepare? I mean, you, you got responsibilities. And I said, I know I got my truck. I got a trailer. I, I, I'm just as in the dark as everybody else is here. Because when, it, when they talk about lava intrusion, you know, it's kind of a first for me. And uh, pretty sure it was a first for everybody else too, so. So then I'm talking to my father at 4.30 in the afternoon. That's when we were talking about this. And I kept hearing this jet engine sound. And I thought, huh, maybe PGV is releasing all the steam, shutting down for safety precautions. And, you know, it's just what went, instantly went through my mind. And, and I thought, oh, okay. That's nothing, you know, jet engine sound. <laughs> then all of a sudden, sulfur comes through every window of the house. It was a beautiful sunny day, breezy. Sulfur just comes through the whole house. And, and I, I told my dad, I said, I got to go. Something's going on right now. I got to go. So I hung up the phone and I told my boys, get off the PS4s. It's time to go. Let's go check it out. And we only live two streets away from Mohalla Street. And this is where it all started. That's where Fissure 1 started. And we got there and get out of the truck and it's shooting 150 feet. That's the, the plume coming out of the ground. It was so thick and pungent, the, the sulfur. You, know, you could see the red glow coming out of the ground. You know, the, the lava was spewing out onto the, uh, the road. And I just told my boys, I said, hey, turn around, let's take a picture. You're never gonna be here again. And so I got the kids and we went to the house and we started bugging out. We put the trailer on the truck. And first thing I put in the trailer was my deep freezer <laughs> i don't know why but i just put the i had the dolly and i just put the deep freezer hey there's all our food for the next couple of weeks maybe you know because you're just trying to think of what to grab and i told my kids i said hey if you love it you better get in the truck right now and they come out with our tvs and ps4s i'm like you guys come on 
think food clothing right you know all that good stuff essentials yeah all that stuff <laughs> so and mind this they thought i was crazy they said oh dad it's just earthquakes and i'm like nah never felt that ever from the outside from somebody that i was just watching it happen mm -hmm. it's hard to understand or hard to grasp the scale of what was happening how wide how how tall mm -hmm. One of the things I think is that when people actually understand the scale, just how surprised they are, what was the most surprising thing about the eruption to you? I guess it was the first day. People never thought this would really, really happen. It was beyond their wildest dreams, but you know what? Hearing the jet engine sounds, you know what they, that is? It's when the, the lava has finally surfaced, okay? That jet engine sound is when it's all starting to shoot out. And it's basically like a blowtorch coming out of the ground. And it's about six to seven feet tall in places. This is coming from a mile down. And it takes a while for it. So you won't know the heat is coming until it's there. I mean, it, once it's there, it's okay. Now you got heat. It's over. It's too late now. So, yeah, I guess that was the the surprise. I, I don't know. It. You know, I, there's nothing that surprises me with lava now. I mean, I... I don't doubt anything. <laughs> you know, I, what burnt, what really aggravates me is when I hear people that live on this island and they say, oh, I'm safe. I'm like, really? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, Waikoloa, all the way down to South Point, all the way up to Cape Kumkahi, and all the way to the Wainui Nui River, you know, you just, you're fair game. You want to go take a walk? Yeah, let's do it. Burmeister also owns much of the land beneath Fisher 8, or what we now call Ahu Ailao. The name references the altar of the Hawaiian deity Ailao. It's also been translated by some as Shrine of the Forest Eater. As we ascend the 170-foot-tall fissure, Burmeister points out what trespassers have left behind on the slope of the cone. What I want to point out real quick is, is you can see it really good. Can you see all those tracks over there? Yeah, I was just going to ask about that. That's all ATVs and dirt bikes. Oh, so this is what happens when something like this is left unattended mm -hmm. and people start doing whatever they want. And, you know, they might be mad at my fence post, but really this stuff is irreversible. It's like walking on the moon. You can't get it out. It's going to take so many years for that to go away. And that, believe it or not, was like two years ago. And I think there was a, another event more recently within the last three months but it blends right in with the two-year-old stuff mm -hmm. so uh you know some people are like ah chris don't worry about it i don't know i wanted better for this place i thought it deserved better i won't doubt we see somebody out here today but previously previous years people everywhere today ahu Lao lies dormant but that doesn't mean that the danger is gone or that people still keep their distance. Even though the eruption has stopped for now, new problems have taken its place. So, anyway, this is the very top edge. We're gonna stay on this trail. Okay. And we move this out of the way. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <clears throat> so this is a good vantage point from right here. So when uh, the cracks are in the ground, first showing and when fissure reactivated the second time that was all of the lava that was at the bottom of Kilauea right. that was finally making its way down and when it showed on the 28th 27th 28th it was like somebody took a thumb and put it over the water hose and it sprays out in every direction that's what it was doing here it had multiple thin fountains shooting out in different directions and then as the hole gets bigger the fountain will get more focused and more it'll get taller right and then as the hole continues to get bigger and bigger and bigger the fountain will get shorter and shorter and then it turns into basically like this huge boiling pot of lava and the lava at times got as high as this uh, collapsed portion right here so yeah that's a lot of lava Anyway, this whole hill is basically made of reticulite and Paley's hair. You can see all the little shards here. I mean, they're really small, needle-like hairs of, of glass or lava, lava glass. But yeah, this whole mountain is basically made out of it. And 
It's, you know, we found pieces this long and during the eruption, you know, oh, hanging on branches. Oh, it was amazing. Three feet long. It's yeah. hard to find. I mean, you can't find that. Yeah. Because it breaks down so fast. You can look at it, it falls apart. <laughs> and that's the middle of the road. So from here, you can see the oh, the end of the oh, road right. over here. Oh, you can see the road there. Yeah. And if you look down there, you can see the albizias, the dead albizias. Yeah. Okay. And look right above the uh, lava and there's a little strip of asphalt okay and it's about a football field length down there that's how far away it is and that's you know how long this road was wow. and that's how much it took so wow. yeah, it's a uh, it's kind of crazy to think you're standing where the road used to be yeah. so this is a lava river we call this the eddy you know, because the, the, the lava would hit here, split, and swirl back here, and then get sucked in with the rest of the lava river and carry it all the way down to Kapo'o. This made the lava uh, the lava river go in this direction, and it just, once it got, once it picked that path, it was gone. Never been in it. I know somebody that has. We made the video. You could pretty much fit a bus through it. It's so, big. so this is a lava channel. Kind of gives you a good idea just how much volume came through here. And this was overflowing at times. Yeah. You know, often. <laughs> and I know from the from the outside, it's hard to capture the speed at which the lava was flowing too. I think I saw one video that finally did it for me. Yep. And it looked like a river full of water yeah it's, it's amazing it was it was it was like niagara falls speed i swear you couldn't outrun this lava had it broken out this way we'd all been in trouble you know burmeister says he's in talks to acquire more land beneath the cooling lava as we started returning to his fence line i asked him what drives him to buy land that has no practical use and is still at risk to erupt again if I'm not going to buy it, that means somebody else could buy it, and I don't know, I might not know that person, they may not know the situation, and, you know, these are bits and pieces of this puzzle, this, this event that happened, and, it, you know, it, for whatever reason, it's important to us, and it's a chapter of our lives that, you know, we'll never forget, and, you know, keeping it safe and sound and, and in our hands, I guess, is the way we're thinking about it. That was Leilani Estates resident Chris Burmeister reflecting on the fifth anniversary of the 2018 Kilauea eruption with HPR's Russell Subiano. Our reality check today looks at the latest on a long-running public corruption scandal. Honolulu Civil Beat editor Chad Blair joins us today. Hi, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So we've got a story that uh, Christina Jedra wrote, a, a, an update on uh, the ongoing scandal there at the Department of Planning and Permitting. Right. So this is the fifth uh, and perhaps final for now anyway, fifth guilty plea in that federal case against the uh, DPP employees. Of course, that's here in the city and county of Honolulu. Uh, two of those uh, former employees are already behind bars. Uh, two others are awaiting their sentencing. Uh, this dates back to uh, 2021, the federal investigation regarding taking bribes at DPP. Well, you know, I, I know lots of uh, interest in this based on the on the, the comments that people are making, uh, you know, uh, on this article. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's been a long haul and some of these employees have been on leave for a while. Right. That's one of the things Christina discovered uh, in her reporting. Uh, this last case, this fifth person. Uh, first, I should preface how unusual it is. Uh, Jocelyn Godoy. Uh, took just $820. $820 was apparently the amount of money she was accepting from an architect. What she did for that money was that she shared digital files of, of building plans, and, and that's what's known as an, um, well, that's a wire fraud, honest services wire fraud. And so that's definitely caught a lot of people's eyes. But the other thing, as you indicated, she did remain. She has been on the payroll, uh, on paid leave, 
with the city and county for two years now. And then it turns out uh, she has another job uh, with the city and county. It's unclear exactly what that is or what will happen. Apparently, uh, because it's a civil service role, that there are rules that guide that sort of uh, declaration, if you will. Well, so the other uh, city employees that were uh, indicted, uh, and you, like I said, they were waiting. Uh, we've been waiting to, to see what the, their sentence mm. is going to be, right? I mean, it's been like, what, yeah, a year Yeah, two of them two? are still waiting. Yeah, exactly. And in, in the case of Jocelyn Godoy, boy, does it look pretty steep, particularly, I mean, this is a crime, a serious crime. But um, boy, if she is uh, fully charged or fully uh, sentenced, she's looking at uh, a maximum 20 years in prison. She could pay up to a quarter million dollars in a fine as well as restitution. Uh, and probably uh, the judge, Judge Watson, actually said, you know, i got to be frank with you, you could also be deported back to the Philippines. She has been in Hawaii since 1971. Godoy sentencing, I believe, is set for the end of August. Yes, and, and the other ones that uh, admitted to taking bribes, uh, they're inspectors, uh, uh, kind of managers of the department. Yeah, exactly. And in this particular case, she happens to have been in the data access imaging branch of DPP. By the way, Christina didn't get any comment from uh, Godoy's attorney, no comment from the prosecutor, and no comment from Mayor Blanchiardi. Uh, we did hear from DPP Director Don Takeuchi Apuna, who said, Look, corruption cases have really been longstanding, a systemic problem at DPP. Combine that with a permitting backlog, right? It takes a long time. Uh, and then that, of course, makes it, if you will, susceptible to these kind of kinds of exploitation, these bribes. She's been working hard to clean DPP up. We should also mention there's also an architect that got snagged uh, in this, Bill Wong. Uh, he handed out a lot of money. Uh, and we're waiting to hear what his sentencing is as well. I don't know the names, or at least it hasn't been revealed, who the other parties are involved. Some people have been saying, well, you're punishing the employees. What about the people that tried to bribe them? Well, in the case of Bill Wong, we will get a sentencing uh, uh, We will get sentencing in his case. Yeah, well, it has been a long, drawn-out saga <laughs> uh, as we look at uh, the, the, the ways that uh, uh, the Department of Planning and Permitting doesn't function uh yeah know, and we'll see if this public. is still going yeah we'll see if it's still going on we're not clear if it's an ongoing investigation but they have asked Godoy to stick around to testify in case they need her in court all right interesting story but thank you so much chad sure that was editor chad blair with today's reality check you can read christina judd's story at civilbeat.org Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. The news and music you hear on HPR are supported in part by nearly 200 local organizations that choose to reinforce their brand with us. Mahalo to Zippies, Furniture Plus Design, and the Davis Levin Livingston Charitable Foundation. They believe just as you do in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. We have talked a lot on this program about the significance of lemu. It's not just seaweed, it's the foundation of the marine life food chain. It's also a crucial part of Hawaii's future and its past. This morning, we'll be talking about that with Wally Ito. He served uh, as a longtime uh, Limu Hui coordinator at Kua, Kua Aina Ulu Ao Amo. Uh, he just recently retired. But we will start with some perspectives from the past with our partners at the Center for Oral History at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. UH Ethnic Studies Professor Tai Kavikatengan is our guide. Wali Kyoshi Ito was born in 1953 in Honolulu and raised in Kapa'alama. He helped found the Limuhui in 2014 to have the aging traditional Limu practitioners share their knowledge with the next generation. He describes the dramatic decline of Limu and Eva on Oahu. Smoking time, there was so much Limu in the water 
the high tide will bring it out, and as the tide recedes, all this lean will be left on, on the shoreline. And all the way from the mouth of Pearl Harbor, all the way to Harvest Point, that's what the shoreline looked like. And there was so much limo in the water, you didn't want to go swim in there. So thick with limo. Humbug for fishermen because you would just fall off the line. But we would catch fish, we'd catch eel, we'd catch moi, some papillo, once in a while a big lua. And within a 10 year period, like early 80s to early 90s, the limo in that short 10 year period went from high abundance to almost no limo. It was easy for fishermen, you know, no more to humbug your line anymore, but no more fish. So members like that maybe realized how important limo is to the fishery. Limo is the base of the marine food chain. So you want to bring back our fish, we need to bring back the limo. Vivian Lehua Ainoa was born in 1937 in Walapu'e Molokai and raised in Kamalo. She learned how to find and gather limo along the south shore of the island of Molokai from her mother. I would plan my day, what kind of limo I would gather, you know. Like if I'm going to go pick up Manawea, I would say, oh, I'll just go do it later on because I know I don't have to really go look for, I knew just where to go get it. But now, because we have so many invasive limo growing in between our other limo, our good limo, you, now you have to really go and hunt for it. So, it's not as easy as you think it's going to be. What makes you decide what you're going to get on a given day? Season. Now that I have too many invasive limo, I used to have, when certain way the sun is, my limo LLA would grow more at my area. Now that when I do things, I'm going to document it because it's so important to share it with our youngsters that are coming up because then they know what needs to be done at a certain season. Allison Napua Barrows was born in Honolulu in 1955. Raised in Kaimuki, Oahu, she grew up gathering limu with her mother and sisters in the near shore waters from Aina Haina to Mauna Lua. Now living in Waihe'e, Maui, she is the founder and director of the Waihe'e Limu Restoration Group. I started to learn the different names and started to learn the different limu that they had. And then I started to learn the Kapuna stories that they knew that it was decreasing already way before. Because one of the big issues was the sugarcane opala was being washed into the ocean and it was covering up the reef and the mud and silt and stuff. So talking to some of the Kapunas, I realized I seen it, but they were seeing it way before I was seeing it. That just started snowballing. Questions started coming up and I was trying to look for answers for these things. And so eventually, I found that one little answer of replanting, take the pohaku and with the limu cover, and we would put it back out there. So I realized that man, the practice wasn't something new. That was Allison Napua Barrows, Vivian Lehua Ainoa, and Wally Ito with UH Ethnic Studies Professor Tai Kavika Tengen. This oral history project is supported by the SHARP Initiative of the National Endowment for the Humanities through the American Council of Learned Societies. And joining us in studio this morning is Wally Ito. Welcome back, Wally. You just retired recently as the Limu Hui Coordinator. Yes, thank you for for inviting me and another opportunity to talk about limu, you know, my favorite subject. Yes. And I got a thrill about oh, oh, just listening to Auntie Vanny and Auntie Napua. So yeah, thank you for that too. Well, you know, when we last chatted, I was out with you at Waimanalo, uh, you know, at uh, the uh, Oceanic Institute with the work that's being done there with the community. You know, they just got a grant to help, you know, the, uh, start up these studies so that, you know, we can really learn more about uh, about limu yeah, so perfect timing for that question because um that project is just starting we're just going to start the uh, data collection part of that project and it's about uh, integrating limu with uh, fish and shrimp aquaculture but also to hopefully provide limu for communities uh, community groups like the waimanalo limu hui and paipai ohiia to um to, to do their own studies about how to um, perpetuate limu and limu culture and limu knowledge. And you know, you're an alum of HPU, you know, and, and so it's just really, it's just neat to see the thread, to see this 
knowledge that's being, you know, uh, passed down and, you know, we're learning new things, developing new techniques just to help um, this resource grow. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what's funny is that uh, when I first started at HPU, I wasn't, you know, Lima was not my focus. Um, it was all about, uh, so I have a degree, a Bachelor of Science degree in marine biology from HPU. And it was about learning about uh, marine ecosystem, about mostly mainly about fish and invertebrates. Um, and then within a few semesters, my interest turned to Limu. And because in ecology classes, you know, we talked about um, uh, food chains. And then I realized that, the, you know, the base of the marine food chain is the Limu. And if we want to bring fish back, it's all about uh, bringing back the Limu. And, you know, a lot is being done to elevate Limu. We just came off celebrating the year of the Limu. Uh, there is an effort now, uh, I think, at the legislature. They just passed uh, a bill uh, to get Limu as designated as the plant, the state plant. Yeah, um, yeah. thanks for bringing that up because uh, a lot of people put in a lot of effort. And I want to mention especially um, the current uh, Limu Hui coordinator for Kua, uh, Malia Hemuli. Uh, so she um, helped to push a bill through this past legislature, and, and thankfully um, it was approved by legis legislature. So the bill is now sitting on Governor Green's office for his signature. Okay, well, hopefully we'll see a ceremony soon. You know, and, and I know the University of Hawaii Board of Regents uh, agreed to name a brand new building after a Native Hawaiian uh, researcher who did a lot to elevate Limu. Isabel uh, Abbott, Isabel Ab Izzy, I guess, yeah. and to Izzy as people know her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, um, well, you know, we're so grateful for Dr. Abbott and her promotion of Limu. So a lot of her graduate students continue to this day to be involved in Limu and Limu, um, Limu passing on Limu knowledge and Limu activities. So, yes, Dr. Isabella Iona Abbott um, um, is going to have a building name for her, and that's so... Um, so 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 great to hear about, and you know, great for that to come about. Yeah, so lots of uh, lots of effort uh, underway in the community to elevate Limu and to protect it, preserve it, and and uh, uh, keep it out there for future generations. But thank you so much for for all that you do. And I know you're retired, but you're still working and still very busy. But thank you so much, Wally. Well, it's not just, you know, I, I'm just one person. There's so many people that, that, you know, help help continue and perpetuate Limu knowledge, Limu culture. Well, thank you so much. And for everyone out there who is helping to elevate Limu, stay with us. We will be right back after a short break. Well, the first of three Hawaii Presidential Scholars graduates tonight, Kahuku High School valedictorian of Anui Peck, will be turning the tassel with a bright future ahead. She leads her class with honors and holds a 4.145 GPA. She heads to Yale this fall. She and 161 other seniors across the country are being honored as U.S. Presidential Scholars for their academic accomplishments. The Conversations Lily and Song caught up with Peck, who is taking a beach break before the whirlwind of commencement. I'm in National Honor Society, which is a community service type of club, and then also the CTE Ambassador Club for Career and Technical Education, which is the same thing that I got the Presidential Scholars Award for. So Career and Technical Education is a type of class that you can take the program at most public schools, and the goal is so that kids can be able to get technical skills for their future careers. So we have like building and construction and agriculture and graphic design. For me, I just, I first got involved in CTE in eighth grade because we had like an exploratory wheel class. So you could take four different classes and a lot of them were CTE classes. Like we had the culinary class. And then I also just took CTE classes that interested me all throughout high school. So I did culinary and this year I'm doing agriculture and Oh, I also did computer science in my junior year. So it was just good to be able to take those different classes and learn about different things. Wow. So eighth grade, it sounds yeah. like you were able to really tap into something early on. How were you able to know that CTE 
really appealed for you? Was it just those were the classes being offered or did you have to choose this track? Yeah, so for CTE classes, our counselor helped us to choose our schedules in the beginning of the year. That's how I got into CTE at first. And then I got really involved with CTE starting my junior year when our CTE coordinator, Mrs. Mewtwo Puibaha, started a CTE ambassador club. And so that's when I was able to like really get involved with the program and meet other students and be in a club with them who were also involved in CTE. You also participated in track and field, cross country. You've gotten into Yale University where you hope to get a degree in mechanical engineering and a certificate in renewable energy systems. Mm -hmm. So that could be like designing windmills or solar panels. So it's just like using mechanical engineering concepts for the purpose of renewable energy. So you had a counselor in intermediate who got you on the CTE pathway, but you've continued through intermediate into high school. Along this journey, where did you have time to build a vertical saltwater hydroponic <laughs> system for sea asparagus? Oh, yeah. So that's another part of the CTE Ambassador Club was it connected us to the learning through internships program that our school has. It's so that people who take CTE classes can take their learning outside of the classroom. So my focus for my internship was agricultural engineering. Even though we don't have an engineering pathway or engineering classes at our school, I was able to learn engineering outside of school through the Learning Through Internships program. And so through that, with my mentor, Dr. Anthony Mao, I had an internship at Kualoa Ranch, and that's where I learned how to build hydroponic systems and grow lettuce. And then also see asparagus. You've identified, though, that there is a market. So what is the mm-hmm. yield? Like, how, how much are you guys growing? And you must take up less footprint. Oh, we're in kind of a transitional stage because we are germinating sea asparagus or propagating them. So right now they're just growing in the soil. And then we're growing lettuce in the vertical system while we're waiting to put the sea asparagus into the system. And nobody else has really been doing sea asparagus for hydroponic vertical Yeah, I think there's one other sea asparagus producer on the island. There's kind of a demand for sea asparagus right now, which is why we wanted to get into that field. Okay, and so how how did you experience COVID? Oh, COVID, we had, so ninth grade year ended really, so at spring break, they were like, you guys are going to have an extra week of spring break, but we ended up never going back to school after that. So ninth grade year just ended at third quarter. And then 10th grade was all online and asynchronous. I still was able to keep up with my classes, but it was really different. And a lot of people struggled with it because it was just like a really big transition and it was a hard time to go through. Mm. Junior year was like our math year. So we had to wear masks all the time at school. And then senior year was when we went back to normal. Mm. And then 11th grade, junior year, that's when you were doing your interning over at the ranch? I started interning in the summer after junior year. I think we're the first class that went through all four years of high school affected by COVID. I'm just thinking like the the journals (laughs) that you're keeping. I mean, one day you could like share that experience with generations down the line. Man, you you have packed so much into high school life. Yeah, it was a packed seven years or six years. Packed six years. And as you look back, you're only like, so as an 18-year-old just graduated from high school, what pearls of wisdom for the underclassmen who are following in your footsteps can you share with us? Yeah, there's a lot of things that I learned. And looking back, I can think of like the things that I'm really grateful that I did and the things that I wish I did. The biggest thing is I would say to get involved as much as you can, like join clubs and Try and find opportunities like internships because you never know where it's going to take you. So like when I was applying to colleges, I was still wishing that I had gotten involved in even more clubs and stuff because they ask you to write about your activities. I was just like wishing I could have more things that I could put on my resume. Yeah, it's just try and get involved in as many things as you can because they can take you really great places. And then My other piece of advice is to just always like dream big and believe in yourself because like even in elementary school, I would like dream about going to somewhere like Yale, but I never thought it would actually happen. 
And so, like, now looking back, I'm just really glad that I even applied to Yale because it wasn't something that I felt like I could do, like, get into Yale. So I kind of just applied to apply. And then I ended up getting in, and it was, like, a huge surprise. So, yeah, just try and go for every opportunity, even if you don't think you're going to get it because you never know. So after you get your degree, are you planning on returning to Hawaii, or do you see more open horizons ahead where you would like to travel outside of Hawaii? Yeah, my ultimate goal is to come back to Hawaii and because I want to help to improve renewable energy here. So however that may be, I'm not sure yet, but I'm hoping to come back so that I can work on improving our infrastructure and stuff. Well, you are giving me hope for the future. Just <laughs> seeing how like you were able to, like in the past six years, just achieve so much. I wish you well, all the best in your endeavors. Thank you. It's been wonderful meeting you, Va'anui. Anything else you'd like to share before we say aloha? Yeah, thank you. I'm just really grateful to have gotten this honor and represent Hawaii and my school and even my hometown, like putting Ka'ava on the map because a lot of people don't know where Ka'ava is. And then also Kuhuku, like, isn't, it's mostly known for sports. So it's good to show that we're, like, strong for academics, too. And just, like, get our name out there. Just a super cool experience. I'd love to shout out all of my teachers at Kuhuku High School, especially Mrs. Niutupuibaha and Ms. Niu, the CTE coordinators, and just all the teachers who supported me and all of my classmates and friends and my family. Oh, and Dr. Anthony Mao from Kulo Ranch. And that was Kuhuku High valedictorian student scholar via Nui Peck talking with HPR's Nulian Song. The Yale-bound freshman plans to become an engineer focusing on renewable energy. Peck, along with Annabelle Kinsey and Michael Shermer of Ilani School, are the three Hawaii high school seniors named as presidential scholars, class of 2023. Congrats to all. Well, that does it for us right now. Tomorrow, we plan to talk tourism with the new head of the Department of Business and Economic Development and Tourism. Give us some feedback. Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And want to listen back to something you heard? Find the Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. 